our Christmas series, we're going to be talking about what are the greatest gifts that we can give uh, this time of the year. And if you've been around for a while, you know just how much I love Christmas. And when it comes to Christmas, I'm pretty much a traditional, traditionalist. I'm a purist. In fact, that's probably why President-elect Trump invited me up to New York this past week, because he's got a new place in his cabinet for the Secretary of Christmas. And... Uh, <laughs> He wanted to talk to me about it. I told him I wasn't interested. I didn't pay enough. Plus, I think he gave it to Kanye. I saw Kanye coming in as I was leaving. I think he actually, he actually got the post. I think I would be a great person for that role, though, because I'm going to tell you something. When it comes to Christmas, I feel like I'm the poster child. I feel like I'm the standard to how we should celebrate Christmas. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Christmas music. So when it comes to Christmas music, I want it to be traditional. I want it to be the way it was written. I want it to be the way I've heard it since I was a child. I don't want to hear songs like John Lennon's, So This Is Christmas, What Have You Done? I mean, that's just too dang depressing. We don't need that at Christmas, right? I don't want to hear Band-Aid, There Will Not Be Snow in Africa This Christmas. Boo-hoo. I don't have time for that. I'm worried about, is there going to be snow in Holly Springs this Christmas? See, that's what I'm worried about. But when it comes to Christmas music, I want to hear Bing Cosby. I want to hear Nat King Cole. I want to hear Tony Bennett. I want to hear Percy Faith and his orchestra play Joy to the World. See, that's what I want. I think it should be actually illegal. If anybody takes a great original Christmas song and screws it up. I'll give you a good example. Celine Dion's version of Oh Holy Night. And you hear that and you think, whoa, a great vocalist like Celine Dion, a great song like Oh Holy Night, that is going to be incredible. Listen to this, her new dance mix. Are you kidding me? Listen. Stop it. I can't take anymore. Just stop it, Ellie. Just stop it. I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Send her butt back to Canada. See, we don't need that kind of stuff here in America, right? But when it comes to Christmas music, I don't need hippopotamuses. I don't need grandma getting run over by a reindeer. I don't need birds with broken wings, mama's Christmas shoes. I don't need Snoopy and the Red Baron. I don't need Dominic the Italian Christmas donkey. Not at Christmas. I don't need any of that stuff. Just give me traditional Christmas music. In fact, there are really two aspects that I love about Christmas. One is the aspect of giving gifts. The other one is the time that we get to get, spend together uh, with family. And when it comes to giving gifts, I'm also a traditionalist. I think we got to protect it. I don't, I don't want anyone to give me a price limit. I think I should be able to give anybody a gift I want to give a gift to. I don't, think, I don't like it as families that we draw names. I don't want to do that. One year we'd said, let's bring our favorite things. And so we brought our favorite thing and exchanged it. I went home with a pair of earrings that my 85-year-old mother bought. How messed up is that, right? <laughs> See, when it comes, I am such a purist when it comes to giving gifts at Christmas. I won't even let Laura put my gift in a gift bag. It has to be in a box with shiny paper and a beautiful bow. She knows that. So we got to protect this idea of giving gifts. The other aspect is the whole aspect of spending time with our family, and not just in the traditional sense. It's interesting, Webster says that a family is a group of people united by certain convictions. It's a group of persons of common ancestry, a group of individuals living under one roof, usually under one head. And although that may be true, and it is true of traditional families, it's interesting, if you look at that definition, it's also true when it comes to a church family. Think about it, we have similar convictions. As Christians, we all come from the same spiritual heritage. We all spend some time together under one roof. And according to Paul, what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as a body of believers, we are under one head, Jesus Christ. So just look around this weekend. Like it or not, we are family, okay? Like it or not, we are stuck with one another. So this weekend, this is what I want us to do. I want us to take the aspect of giving gifts. I want us to take the aspect of families, and I want us to put it together. And I want to think about gifts that we can give one another 
in the church family. And you may be wondering, where do we come up with that kind of list that we can give to one another in the church family? Well, if you have your Bible this weekend, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul gives us the kind of gifts that we can give to one another, not just in our traditional families, but in our church family that can literally not just change the life of the person, the recipient of the gift, but it can change the life of the giver. It's kind of like what DZ just sang, our, our grown-up Christmas list. By the way, did you, did you appreciate that rendition of that song. Was that not incredible? I, I listened to it in rehearsal yesterday. I got through three services already. I cry like a little girl every time he sings it. I got one more to go. But that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about those kinds of gifts that literally can change our life and can change the world. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let's talk about it just a little bit. Um, if we're going to give gifts this way, we need to think about what kind of gifts they would be? What kind of qualities are we looking for in these gifts? And the first one would be, let's make sure it's a gift that lasts. See, I think we probably have all opened up a present on Christmas and we realized that it was going to be next year's white elephant gift, right? We knew we weren't going to hang on to that gift. But as we work through this, these gifts we're, that we're talking about this weekend, we want, we want to be careful that we choose a gift that's going to last for years to come. Second, we want to make sure it's a gift that encourages the biblical term is edify, it means lifts up. And so as we think about these gifts that we want to give each other, we want it to be gifts that lifts up the person that we're giving it to. And then third, we want to make sure it's a gift that costs us something. I mean, we're in church, let's be honest, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever re-gifted? Just, just raise your hand. Yeah, see, now, see, 38 years ago, this week, Laura and I will be married 38 years. So 38 years ago when we got married, it wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. See, when a couple gets married today, you have a registry at every store, and we have to buy you exactly what you want us to buy you. Not a whole lot of surprise in that. 38 years ago, you were at the mercy of the people you invited to your wedding. And what happened was you would usually end up to, with 12, 13, 14, maybe 15 relish trays. You know, those little fancy clear glass trays. And you couldn't really return them because they didn't come receipts. And nobody wanted to give you anything for them if you took them back to the store. So what Laura and I ended up doing was taking all these relish trays and putting them up on the shelf in a closet. And whenever there was a wedding of someone we didn't like all that much or we felt that there was someone we had to give a gift to and it was worthy of a relish tray. See, we would take down one of the relish trays and we would give it to them and we would act like, yeah, we earned it with our heart. You know, we bought it with our hard-earned money, right? We probably have all done that. It's, it's a little shameless, but we've done it, see? But the reality is this. We know that the gifts that really mean something to us in the long haul, somebody sacrificed for. They cost somebody something. Those are the kind of gifts that we're going to look at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn there if you have your Bible. If not, that's okay. We're going to put the verses up on the screen. But it's interesting. Paul gives us this list, and, and he kind of breaks it down into two different categories. The first part of the list is things that are kindly requested, and then he talks about things that are urgently needed. I'll give you an example. He begins in verse 12. Now we ask you. So he's writing to this church at Thessalonica, and he says, when it comes to these gifts, we ask you. They're kindly requested. And he, and he gives us some gifts that would be nice for us to share around the holidays. And, and I kind of refer to these as stocking stuffers. See, when I was growing up, we never really got great gifts in our stockings. We didn't get watches. We didn't get diamonds. We didn't get keys to new cars. Can I just ask you guys a question? You watch the commercials around Christmas. Do families really give cars with big red bows on them at Christmas? Do you really give BMWs and Audis? Because if you do, I want you to know, I'm available for adoption. And I'm a good deal. I'm, I'm potty trained pretty much. You don't have to pay for my college education. And unlike millennials, I already have a career. See, so I'm kind of a good option when it comes to adopting someone. 
But when I was growing up, we didn't get great Christmas gifts in our stockings. In fact, we were so poor, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, I never had a stocking in the sense that you have stockings in your life. Literally, our dad gave us one of his socks. And we didn't have a fireplace, and so we would take a nail. We were a very classy family. And we had a little closet door in our little living room, and we would nail the sock to that door. And on Christmas morning, we would have some oranges and apples and nuts. If we had a really good year, maybe we would get some candy. But we knew it was just kind of the pre... It wasn't the great stuff. The great stuff was going to come later. The great stuff was under the tree. So we had these stocking stuffers. It's almost like Paul starts with stocking stuffers. And he says, here's some things that are kindly requested. But then when you get to verse 14, he says, here's a list of things that are urgently needed. And maybe this is a year at Christmas where you're praying for something that is urgently needed. Maybe you urgently need a job. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe, maybe it's your health. Maybe it's due to a relationship. So you will understand this list. So we get things that are kindly requested. Then we get things that are urgently needed. Now, I want us to see what these gifts look like. And as you came in this weekend, you should have gotten a card like this. If you didn't get a card, raise your hand. We'll give you one. But on the back of it, it says, my Christmas gift list. And as we go through these gifts, I want you to think about who is the person in my family? Who is the person in the church family that I worship with in every, small, uh, every week? Someone in my small group who could really use this gift this Christmas. And I'm going to challenge you to fill this out and by Christmas to give that gift. Now, I know this is old school and some of you haven't written anything down in years. So pull out your phone. If you want to use your phone, use your phone. It's probably on our app this weekend, or you can just go to your notes and write it down. But let's take this seriously this weekend. Here's the first. First things are kindly requested, and Paul begins in verse 12, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now we ask you, brothers, to acknowledge, and the Greek word means to appreciate, to respect those who work hard among you. And he's writing this in the context of a church. So this could be a pastor, it could be a staff member, but to be honest with you, we're easy. We get respected, we get appreciated far more than we need to be respected and appreciated. In fact, I tell people that being a pastor of a large church is kind of like being an NFL quarterback. You probably get way too much credit when things go well, and you get way too much blame when things aren't going all that well, right? But maybe it is a pastor, maybe it is someone on staff, but think more in terms of those individuals around us every weekend that fly under the radar. For example, it may be your small group leader. It may be the person who ministers to your child in Kid City. It may mean uh, someone who mentors your student who's in student ministries. It may mean the person who takes your baby every week at the nursery and loves on that baby and changes that baby's diaper so that you can be in here with us at one of our campuses and you can worship and you can listen to the message this weekend. It could be a greeter who welcomes you every weekend. It could be someone who works in the parking lot and, and helps you avoid the chaos of getting in and out of the parking lot. It could be someone who works in the coffee shop. It could be one of these guys on our tech team. Maybe you just need to say, you know what, I appreciate what you do. Now, understand, they make sure we have sound and haze and lighting and videos. The only time they ever hear from you is when the music's too loud, the haze is too thick, you didn't like the video. See, so understand, if you go up and say, hey, I thank you, I appreciate you, be prepared, they're going to faint. So be ready to grab them, right? But whoever it is, Paul says, look at the people who fly under the radar and acknowledge them and respect them. In other words, this isn't something that's forced on you. Nobody's going to make you do this. It's just something that you decide to do. You choose, I am going to show some respect. I am going to show some appreciation. I'm going to let someone know how grateful I am for what they do and how they minister to my life. But see, this is more than just showing respect or appreciation because Paul goes on in verse 13, hold them in the highest regard in love 
because of their work. In other words, it's not because they're perfect. It's not because they need to be put on a pedestal because of their title or because of their position. It's because they are qualified to be appreciated and respected and held in highest regard because of the difference, the impact they make on your life. So let me just ask you as we start out with these stocking stuffers, who do you look past every weekend that maybe your thank you, your gift of appreciation, it's going to be what keeps them going into a new year. So just take your card, write right here, who needs the gift of respect and appreciation? Now, I'm just going to tell you, this is a pretty easy gift to give because when you leave here this weekend, most of us could take care of this before we even leave our campuses. Stopping by the sound booth, stopping by the video room, saying something when you pick up your child out of Kid City, running into somebody who's made an impact in your life. You could take care of this, but who needs the gift of respect and appreciation? Who deserves it? Who could use it? And you'll notice the second request in verse 13. He says this, live in peace with each other. Let me ask you a question. Why is this such an important gift? It's because of this. When a church family or even a traditional family gives the gift of peace, to each other, that church can't be destroyed by strife. That's a family that can't be destroyed by division. And it always breaks my heart, I've told you this before, when I hear of a church, especially a church in our community, that has split or maybe has blown apart because it always reminds me what happens when there's a breakdown of this gift of peace. It reminds me that there's an individual or maybe a group of individuals who just absolutely refuse to give the gift of peace. Now, Paul, in another letter that he wrote, the letter to the church at Rome, he tells us what this, this gift of peace looks like. This is what he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. He says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And this word cling is an interesting word because it means to be so bonded, so glued that you can't be separated from it. So you're that bonded to doing what is good. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. But then he, then he comes to verse 18. If it is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And, and I love the way Paul says it because, let's face it, with some people... When it comes to living at peace, it just isn't possible. I mean, some people in our traditional families are jerks. Some people in our church family are just jerks. There are some people, I'm just being honest now, that are so miserable. See, they can't even live at peace with themselves, much less live at peace with others. And so I think what Paul is saying is we do our best to build bridges of peace to other individuals. But sometimes when we do that, we're going to get the detour sign, like not interested. And when we get the detour sign, we go on our way. See, I've learned that life is way too short to waste it on a few who refuse to make peace. But Paul says, listen, do everything within your might. Do everything within your power, within your control to try to make it happen. So let me just ask you a question. Who do you need to make peace with this Christmas? Maybe in your traditional family, maybe in the church family. Who do you need to make peace with? Who, who are you willing to go to and say, you know what? We've had this little conflict. We've had this turf war going on. We've, we've had this grudge because I didn't get in my way. Enough's enough. I'm ready to lay down the sword. I'm ready to extend the olive branch. I want to give the gift of peace. Let me tell you the best way to do it. This is what I've learned. Have you ever been in a room with someone 
and there's this tension, there's the elephant in the room because there's some unresolved conflict, and so you're uncomfortable, and you maybe run into them at the mall, and you know what I've learned over the years? Sometimes the best thing you can do, and maybe it's just when the Holy Spirit moves in your life, to just hug an individual and say, this is stupid. Life's just too short. Can we just drop it and move on? I'm telling you, nine times out of 10, that will resolve the conflict. But who do you need to give the peace, the gift of peace to this Christmas? And then we change all of a sudden from these stocking stuffers, things that are kindly requested. All of a sudden, Paul gives us a list of things that are urgently needed, urgently requested. He says in verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters. Now notice this, warn those who are idle. This word warn uh, could also be translated, it may be translated in your Bible, admonish. Warn or admonish those who are idle and disruptive. Now let me just say this, like it or not, just like in your earthly uh, traditional family, like it or not, there are times in the church family when we need to admonish one another. By the way, this is a strong term. It carries with it the idea of a confrontation is gonna be necessary. There's gonna be some accountability necessary. It's the idea of correcting someone even though you know it's going to hurt them to hear the truth. And this is interesting. This word idle is also interesting. Warn those who are idle. In Paul's day, this word was a military term and it was used to describe a person who was away from their assigned post. In other words, they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. They weren't behaving the way they were supposed to be behaving. And if they left that assigned post because of their idleness, because of their lack of discipline, because they weren't behaving the way they were supposed to be behaving, because they weren't doing the things they were supposed to be doing, they needed to be confronted. They needed to be admonished, get back to your post. Now, let's just be honest. There are times as Christians that we get a little lazy we get a little undisciplined, a little slack, and, and, and we, we leave our post. As Christians, we, we stop doing the things that we know we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes we stop behaving the way that we know we're supposed to be behaving. By the way, just so you can, I'll let you know, just like in your traditional family, your earthly family, you hurt the church family, the entire family, when you live that way. See, it paralyzes our relationships because, see, you won't take your proper post. You won't take your proper position as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a child of God. You won't behave the way you're supposed to behave. You won't do the things you're supposed to do, and it disrupts the entire family. And those of us who love us, see, they're very patient with us, and they give us a lot of chances, and they give us a long leash to get our act together. But sometimes we just won't get our act together. Sometimes we just will not change. So occasionally, we have to be the recipient of the gift of admonition so that we get back to our post, so that we get back on the straight and narrow, so that we get back to doing what we're supposed to be doing and behaving the way we're supposed to be behaving. And maybe right now as you're listening, guys, maybe you have a friend, he's married also, but you know he's on a slippery slope with his marriage. And he's starting to make some decisions, and you see it. And if someone doesn't admonish him, it could be a disaster. Ladies, you may know someone, you may have a friend and she's married and maybe she's in the same position. It could be, it could be a child, it could be a classmate, it could be a, a coworker. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. I cannot wait to get out of here and give this gift. In fact, you don't have just one, you've been writing the whole time. You got like 32 names now of people that you know need admonishing, right? Right? So let me, just, let me just admonish you, okay? Um, 
be careful. You need to understand that this gift of admonishing is not effective if it's not preceded by the gift of love. In other words, before you ever admonish someone, you make sure that it is prompted by love. You make sure that it is bathed in prayer and humility. Let me give you a principle that I often use. You will never influence anyone who doesn't feel accepted by you. In the same way, your admonishment of someone will never be effective if they don't at first feel loved by you. They have to know where it's coming from. If they sense at all, it's not coming from love. And from their perspective, it's just going to be you judging them. I've also learned this. Often, timing is much more important than content. And this is what, where the humility and the prayer is so important. Because you've got to go before God and say, God, give me the wisdom to know when they are in a position to receive this gift that I'm going to share with them. So I would just admonish you. Move slowly. Move gently. But who in your earthly family or who in your church family, you know, you know they're heading in a direction that could be destructive. And you may be the person that God has called to give this gift. Take out your paper, go to your phone, write down and says, they need the gift of admonition. And then when we get to verse 14, he says, encourage the disheartened. And this is a term that was used in the first century for a person who was overly worried, someone who was deeply discouraged. We may even use the word despondent. And I think that our assignment as Christians is to wrap up in our skin the gift of encouragement and give it to them. Now, you may or may not have heard that this past Friday, uh, a week ago, um, my dad had a stroke. I was Christmas shopping that morning and I got the call that I don't care how old you are or how old your parents are, you, you don't want to get that call. And the call was, dad's had a stroke. They're getting him to the hospital. You need to get there. And it's, it's, been, a, it's been a crazy ride. It's been a crazy ride. Um, I was in on Friday and I said, I said, dad, do you know my name? And he looked at me. He said, I know you're my son. And I was excited because I have two sisters. He didn't think I was a daughter. So, you know, <laughs> you, you just grasp onto whatever little thing you, you can get. But we're in for a journey and we're asking the same questions you ask when your parent, are they going to be able to continue their quality of life? My mom and dad, they're here every Saturday night at 4.15. And then they go to a real church on Sunday morning where they participate. And, um, <laughs> and my dad's a rock. He's just a rock. He, uh, he dropped out of school in the eighth grade because my grandfather was an alcoholic. I never saw my grandfather sober. So my dad dropped out and got a job as a meat cutter as an eighth grader supported his sisters and his mom, went off to the Air Force. But because of the impact of my, father, my grandfather's alcoholism, my dad is 89 years old, never had a drop of alcohol in his life. In fact, when he was serving in Germany at the end of World War II, I have a picture. He was in the Air Force with his battalion, and they all had these big steins of beer, and my dad has a Coke in his hand. He's just that kind of guy. He's a rock. And now to see him, not who I'm used to seeing, you know, I'm no different than you. It's nice to have some encouragement. I've gotten so much encouragement. But one thing that really stuck out to me is we have some brand new neighbors who now go to Hope because we opened the Apex campus. See, that's the, the investment that you made, by the way. Three families that live right around us that go to Apex every weekend. And last Saturday night, they called us because they knew about it. And they, we went over next door and we're sitting at their kitchen table. And it's about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And one of my brand new neighbors said, can we just, can we just hold hands? Can we just pray for Mike and Laura? 
And I'm telling you, that gift of encouragement, it is a powerful gift when it's given to people who are discouraged, when it's given to people who are despondent. And let me just say this, I love this gift, and I so want to model this gift, but it is not my personality. My staff will tell you, it is not my gift. It is not the way I'm wired. I am a fixer-upper kind of person. And one of my biggest challenges as a parent and a husband has been when people want to share with me, let me tell you three things. We can get this fixed right now. You know, it's the same way when you come to me for counseling. So you come in, cry, pour out your heart, go through my whole boxes of Kleenexes, and I'm like, well, here you go. See this verse right here? Do that. See you later. All right, just go do that, and you're going to be okay. But see, this is what I'm learning now. I'm learning that good counselors don't do that. Good counselors take people through a process, right? I like people, get through the process and do the right thing. Let's just do the right thing. Let's just get to the bottom line, right? See, I'm finally learning that sometimes the greatest encouragement that you can give someone is just the simple reassurance that you care, that you're available. Not a sermon, not a book, not a verse, not a story, not a podcast. Just, hey, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I care about what you're going through. I've said before, you have no idea, nor do I, the loneliness and hurt that sits around you weekend after weekend. You would be stunned right now if you knew what was going on beneath the surface of lives close enough to you right now that you could touch. You got single parents here who are absolutely exhausted. You've got individuals who are recently divorced or recently separated and they're lonely and they're disillusioned and they're feeling rejected. You got people around you right now who are under-resourced. There's just this sense of, it's hopeless. You know, forget buying Christmas presents. They want to know, can I keep the rent on? Can I keep the, the lights on? Can I pay the rent? Am I, am I even going to have food on the table for Christmas? Right. I'm telling you, you would be stunned if you knew how many people are thinking, I don't know if I can do this anymore. But even scarier, and unfortunately, we're dealing with more and more of this, I don't want to do this anymore. So this Christmas, when you meet up with a person who's down, depressed, despondent, don't just rush by on your way to your next big family event or Christmas party or activity. Why don't you stop and, and give the gift of encouragement? You'll have to figure out what that looks like in that individual's life. But I will tell you this. This is really one on my heart this year. Single parents. It would be a shame. It would be, we, it would be a sin for us as a church to let the holidays go by and single parents go through it by themselves. So I'm going to put it on you. We've taken it as a personal challenge in our family, but I'm going to put it on you to find those single parents and make them a part of your family this Christmas. You will have no idea the encouragement it will be to them. And you may develop a friendship that will change lives. So here, here you go. Take your card out. Who in your life right now needs the gift of encouragement? And if you can't think of someone, there's something wrong with you. You got to get out of that cave you're living in because somebody right now desperately needs it. Next, verse 14, help the weak. And the word that Paul uses for help means to hold someone close. It's the idea of bonding, staying near, supporting. It's the exact opposite of abandonment. In fact, this word suggests that you stay close to that person as long as they need you. Maybe, maybe they're exhausted. Maybe they are suffering from burnout. Maybe they're recovering from a traumatic event or a significant Loss. And you have, you've been with them, you've been with them every step of the way. But now all of a sudden you're starting to have thoughts like, when are they just going to snap out of it? 
When are they just going to pull it together and move on with their life? This is what Paul says. Don't give up. Don't stop. Don't become frustrated just because you're not seeing the results that you think you ought to be seeing. Don't become frustrated just because they're not responding and recovering the way you think you would respond and recover. So the question is, anyone you've given up on this year, or you're getting ready to give up on, you're getting ready to quit on, Keep helping the weak. Go to your card. Who needs the gift of support? You're not going to abandon them now. You're going to be there for them. And then for all of us, verse 14, be patient with everyone. And I've used this before. There's an English colloquialism, short-tempered. We don't have a word for long-tempered. That's what this word patient really means. The first part of the word means long or far in the distance. The second part of the word means heat. It's the Greek word thumos. We get our word thermometer from it. And literally the word patience means long before we get heated. Long before we get heated. In the first century, it was used to describe someone who had been abused, wrong, who had suffered at the hands of someone, and they had the ability, they had the means, they had the opportunity to get even. But they chose not to. That's patience. You are long-tempered. You have a long fuse. And Paul says here, be patient with everyone. Okay? Now this is going to get in your grits a little bit. Who is just right now flat wearing you out under your skin? They are on your last nerve. Look at everybody looking at each other and smiling. You're looking at your spouse. You know. This is the person when you see them coming, you go that way. Because you don't even want to have, you know, because you know if I get in the conversation, you know, right? Who needs the gift of patience? Put their name there. Maybe it's a child, a spouse, a coworker, a classmate, a neighbor. Who needs the gift of patience? And while you're in the giving mood, look at the next one. Refuse to retaliate. Look what he says in verse 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Look at that. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other. I'm telling you something. If this is the only gift we gave away this Christmas... If this is it, think of the families that would be reunited. Think of friends that would embrace again. Think of brothers and sisters who would talk again. Think of neighbors who would have a relationship again. Think of the energy we would save just by getting rid of anger and this constant thought of retaliation and just giving the gift saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to refuse to retaliate. But this is what's interesting, and this is why it's so tough. It requires forgiveness. And we all know Jesus described forgiveness as canceling the debt. And the reason he said that is because usually when someone offends us, there's a sense they took something from us. They robbed us of a chance to be in, a, in, a, in the marriage of, that we dreamed about. They, they robbed us of the childhood we think we deserve. They took that job away from us. They got my promotion. They owe me. That's why we say things like, you owe me an apology, right? Jesus says, they don't owe you anything and they could never repay you anyways. So your job is to cancel the debt. You give the gift of forgiveness. I mean, you can't even say forgiveness without saying the word give. It's the greatest gift that you'll give anyone this Christmas. I mean, think of the person in your life right now. They burned you. And you know what? They probably live with the guilt of that every day. Can you imagine what that family member would feel like if they walked into your house next Sunday this time? 
and you just put your arms around and say, hey, you know what? I just want to make this clear. I forgive you. Now, let me just say this. Some of you are going to give this gift, and the person you give it to, they're, they're not going to receive it. Because, see, maybe they don't want to let it go. Maybe the fact that they don't like you, it's what gets them up every morning. It gives them a purpose to live. I don't know. They just don't want to bury the hatchet, right? And if that's the case, Paul would say, don't worry about it. Just chill out, you know? What did he say? If possible, as far as it depends on them. Nope. If possible, as far as it depends on the situation. Mm-mm. If possible, as far as it depends on the circumstances, live at peace. No. He says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. That's all you can do. In fact, let me just remind you of this principle. Reconciliation cannot always be the goal when you forgive. Sometimes, because of the damage, it is impossible and unrealistic to think that the relationship is going to be reconciled. But here's the cool stuff. When you forgive, when you cancel the debt, you still do what God called you to do. Therefore, you're being obedient. Therefore, you're going to walk away and the chains are going to fall off and you're going to be set free because you have canceled the debt. By the way, let me just add this. The person you may need to give the gift of forgiveness to this Christmas is yourself. Isn't it true that often the last person that we are willing and have the ability to forgive is ourself? And my guess is that this is falling on the years of some people who really need to hear this because maybe this is a year. You didn't, you didn't just blow it. You really blew it. And you're thankful nobody knows. And I get it. <laughs> I mean, I am so thankful that you don't know all my sins and all the ways that I have blown it. And I love to confess 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, or quote 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, he'll forgive us our sins, he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you've blown it, you've probably confessed it, but isn't it amazing that you can confess it, but every day you still carry the guilt and the shame? And you confess it again, but you still feel guilty and you still feel ashamed. So this weekend, I got, I got some good news for everybody who lives their life like that. And I, left, I lived my life like that because I was a Baptist. That's just what you do. You're always guilty, right? I used to get saved every Sunday. And I went to the old church where we said 1,400 verses of just as I am, right? Right? Till somebody went forward. And we're like, you go. No, I went last week. But if somebody doesn't go forward, we're never going to get out of here. You know, and it was those kind of things. But I can't tell you how many times I went down to the altar and got on my knees and said, well, if I wasn't a Christian last week, I want to make sure I'm a Christian this week. And so let me give you some good news. If you've confessed it, but you, feel, you still feel guilty and ashamed, this is what you do. You simply go to God and say, God, you know I blew it. You and I both know I screwed up big time. But God, for this last time, I'm going to confess it. And by your grace and mercy, God, it will never happen again. So God, right now I claim your forgiveness and God, now I release the guilt and the shame and then you move on with your life and you claim the promise of Romans 8, 1, which is a great verse if you have a past and we all have a past, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and you may need to claim that 50 times a day. Every time you start feeling that sense of guilt and shame because of your past, because God's already forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself. Oh, yeah, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You may have to say it a hundred times. David understood the importance of this. 
committed adultery. Bathsheba got pregnant, killed her husband, said, I'll take her as my wife. She'll be my, uh, I'll, I'll raise the baby. Everybody will think it was mine to start with until Nathan the prophet showed up and said, mm, God knows. And it's interesting, if you go to the early part of Psalms, Dave, David, he, 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 he confesses. But when you get to Psalm 51, he's still carrying the guilt and the shame. And that's when he has that great psalm where he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. But this is what he says in Psalm 51, verse seven. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me tell you something. If you, if you have never made peace with your past, you will never ever flourish in your future. You'll never soar. You'll never be the person God called you to be. That past will continue to come up again and again and again and again until you finally understand there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You want to have a white Christmas? Give yourself that gift. That's why Isaiah could say, though your sins be as scarlet, he'll wash them white as snow. White as snow. Who needs to get the forgiveness? Write it down. And you may need to put your name there. This is the only gift that it's okay to give yourself at Christmas. But what a great gift to give yourself. So when you think about the application this weekend, make your list, check it twice. Say, God, who in my life needs these gifts? And I would challenge you by Christmas, give them the gift. Give them the gift. And it may be true in your family, your earthly family, your human family. It may be true in the church family. Let me tell you something. The church was never designed to be an edifice. It was never designed to be an architectural dream. It was never designed to be a place that impressed the public. The church is a family. It's a family. It's not a place where we hold grudges and we stare like steel at each other. It's a family. It's a place where Jesus Christ demonstrates his life through us. So what are you going to give the family this year? See, these are gifts. Change everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for a savior. Because you know how bad we need saving. I pray for those sitting here right now who still think they can save themselves. Convince them this Christmas that that's the beauty of the message. God knew we couldn't save ourselves. He knew we needed saving, so he sent us a savior, and it's good news of great joy for all people. Regardless of our baggage, regardless of our issues, regardless of our past, it's good news of great joy for all people. May that thought, may that principle, that truth, may it explode in our hearts and minds. This Christmas, in your name we pray.